No hall, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. You're joining so us here. on your last week of work. Where are you off to next? I am heading uh, back to my motherland, to, to India. Um, I'm going to be focusing on um, uh, online speech and uh, tech issues there. So misinformation, disinformation, content moderation, um, censorship. I'm going to be writing for The Hindu, which is one of the big newspapers in India, and doing research for the Center for Strategic and Defense Research. So nice. um, exciting place to be during an election year with lots of mayhem and, uh, and commotion. All right, very cool. We're going to get into some of those issues today. We're going to be talking about about AI watermarking. And we also have an interview coming up with Rob Joyce and Morgan Adamski of the National Security Agency. That's coming up on Safe Mode. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, Senior Editor at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl. I'm the host of Safe Mode, and I'm joined today by FedScoop reporter Nahal Krishan. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. This is, this is the first, hopefully not the last. Well, you're leaving us, so this will be the last. <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking today about your uh, reporting on AI watermarking and at the top, I just wanted to ask you maybe for folks that are not familiar with the concept of AI watermarking, which is something that policymakers in DC trying to grapple with AI risks really fixated on, what is AI watermarking? Yeah, so AI watermarking is that uh, is a mechanism and tool to to build trust with users that a piece of content online is authentic and has been created by um, the, the the person who is displaying it. And so there's there's three types of watermarks: there's visible watermarks added to images and videos or text by companies like Google, OpenAI, or Getty to verify the authenticity of content. There's invisible watermarks that can only be detected by special algorithms and software. And then there's cryptographic metadata, which shows um, big into that content, how it was created and how it's been edited or modified before somebody sees it. And this is important because there's been a huge explosion and spew of misinformation and disinformation that's on the rise thanks to generative AI tools that have cropped up in the past couple of years. And this matters a lot because in this year, in 2024, over 2 billion people around the world uh, will be voting in India, in Europe, in the United States. And you know, a generative AI fueled misinformation and disinformation is a humongous critical concern as people head to the polls and there's viral deep fakes of politicians speaking and talking. So the idea with watermarks is as I'm consuming content online, a watermark is supposed to tell me whether something perhaps was generated by artificial intelligence. Is that right? Yes. Whether it was it was created by ChatGPT or Dolly or Midjourney, but but also to tell you beyond just whether it was created by a generative AI tool, who created this this piece of content? Right. So you know, uh, there's this metadata which can show, okay, this came from an Adobe tool, or this mm -hmm. came from the Department of Homeland Security, and you know, watermarking can be used for things beyond just. AI or generative AI right. can just be used to create authenticity and trust in any piece of content. Okay. So this is something that folks in Washington have been thinking a lot about. The recent executive order from the Biden administration really singled out watermarking as something the administration is trying to develop. Talk us through a little bit what the executive order was trying to do with regards to watermarks. Certainly. So, you know, uh, President Biden and the White House released an AI executive order, which was large and wide spanning and highly consequential in, in October. And a key part of it was the Commerce Department's National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, uh, has been charged through the executive order of creating authentication and watermarking standards for generative AI tools and systems. Um, the Senate has also been talking about similar sort of verification technologies. And so sometime in the coming months, NIST is expected to come out with these standards for, for how it is that companies and AI creators can have authentication watermarking uh, within, within their tools. And this is a humongous 
problem and source of confusion and conflict within watermarking and AI policy circles. Yeah, so talk us through the state of the field right now. If I'm um, a generative AI developer and I wanna integrate watermarking into my generative AI solution, do I have it available to me? Like, what are the tools I can use today? So a lot of the big players in the space, so like your Adobe's, Google's, Microsoft's, TikTok, um, have watermarking tools that they have built themselves and have baked yep. in. You know, when you see something from ChatGPT, there's 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 a little logo for it. Um, Google and Bard has its own. So you know, th th a lot of them have their own tools, but. There's nothing government sanctioned right now. There's not a single standard or format for a watermark that the government has approved or said, you know, all AI tools, all tech companies should should have a watermark invisible or visible that looks like X, Y, and Z. It's just like a patchwork that each company has decided to do its own thing. And there's a there's organizations like this, like, like the C2PA, um, which is led by Adobe, Microsoft, and, and some other tech companies, which is leading on trying to create this standard mm. in the private sector yeah. and so you know it's the coalition for content provenance and authenticity and so th there is a fair amount of attention and momentum um with with c2pa um and you know th th i guess the tech companies are hopeful that the government through nist and others will bake the c2pa and, and and other standards that are sort of gathering attention into what the government decides to put out yeah. but that eventually at some point in the coming years we'll have one common standard for yep. all watermarking and that won't be a full 100% solution but it'll close a lot of the bad actors and ills of of, of misinformation yeah, so if out. I wanted to try to manipulate a watermark today like you you, know, you mentioned for example outputs that contain a, a logo or an image saying that something has been generated by an AI system that strikes me as something that would be easy to remove or, or add right you can talk us through a little bit like the landscape when it comes to manipulating or undermining watermarking systems yeah so basically you know manipulating or breaking a AI watermark is not an easy or, or or simple task. It's somebody who has a fairly sophisticated understanding of of watermarks, of, of software and code, of, of generative AI. But in about five to ten percent of cases, bad actors or or, or highly sophisticated you know governments um, can can break a watermark even by you know a, a you know major company like Microsoft or Adobe and basically implant a watermark making it seem like a, a piece of content or video or text has come from the US government or from you know Google or, or, or Amazon and so one it can be implanted second a watermark can be removed so if, if we are trying to create a sense of trust and authenticity somebody can remove it and implant doubt into like Let's say an election poster that shows when you know a, a, an election is happening or that the president or senator has said something mm. in an official capacity so you know it, it's 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 something that is 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 complicated and difficult to do but if you have the right technical expertise it's not it's not exceptionally difficult yeah. uh, it's not like like you know like we have cybersecurity standards or ba banking standards which are extremely difficult to to to, to break in in many ways ai watermarking is not at that stage yet it it, it can by like five to ten percent of experienced actors it, it can be manipulated and used mm. to create more disinformation and dis and misinformation yeah i mean and some of the invisible watermarks that are being rolled out i think are being designed with kind of trying to prevent the type of misuse that you're describing, right? Like, you know, there's the recent like watermarking system that Google rolled out, right? Where they've integrated some kind of like cryptographic solution into a content generation system yeah. such that, you know, there's a computer readable um, component to content that, you know, tips off a system that it's been computer generated, but that's not something that's visible to the human eye, right? <laughs> 
Yeah, and so you know, a, a lot of this is uh, you know one of the key scholars I spoke with, uh, Simu Lu from the University of Buffalo. He said, you know, in in fact, once people know that a watermark exists, then it makes it much more likely that they will try to find a way to break it and mm -hmm. to remove it, or or maybe to add one. And so you know, I, I think invisible watermarks, uh, things baked into metadata, are uh, are certainly viable solutions. Um, and and he mentioned that too. But then they come with their own flaws because obviously for a large consumer facing audience of you know hundreds of millions or billions of people if they have to go into the metadata or something is invisible and they have to use a special tool it makes them much less likely to to do so and then to trust said piece of content so the more work you make people do to verify something um you know the, the fewer number of people will appreciate it the scholars that you speak to when you talk about watermarking in the context of trust like do they think that watermarking systems can deliver trust online like trust in ai is this really hard problem right and the idea that ai is going to undermine trust in content is this really thorny issue with like potentially quite devastating consequences right like what do they say about the the kind of implications for watermarking and trust and and whether it can actually deliver all of these things, the, the trust benefits that we think it can, that we think it will. Yeah, certainly. So just to back up a little bit and give a little bit of context. So, you know, I, I, I did this deep dive on AI watermarking in the past like three to four months and have spoken to like, you know, close to a dozen people in the, in the Senate, uh, academics, uh, human rights folks, folks at the tech companies and their associations. So sort of across the board, comprehensive deep dive. And you know the the the, the gist of, of of what 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 I've heard is that watermarking certainly is one key piece of the puzzle when it comes to mm -hmm. tackling misinformation and disinformation generated by by AI and others. Um, and but it's it's more like a triage tool. So it's 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 one component that can create trust in maybe like 80, 90 percent of people out there. Um, uh, but as I said, you know, there are some pitfalls, but it has to be combined with things like digital and media literacy. So people have to understand themselves how it is that they can figure out an invisible watermark or metadata or have better sense of like fact checking and bullshit detecting when they see something weird. Mm -hmm. So literacy also has to be there. And, you know, and, and then, of course, we have to have legislation um, that 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 sort of creates a standard and 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 makes it much harder for bad actors to not get penalized. So we need yeah. the law to also play a role here in punishing bad actors beyond just the tech companies trying to do what they can. So it's 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 multifaceted, but everyone does agree whether you're in government or the tech sector or academia or human rights digital rights folks that AI watermarking is one of the key tools that we can use to yeah. reduce significant misinformation. Mission you talked to folks in Congress about how they're thinking about AI watermarking. Tell us what you're hearing from folks on Capitol Hill about how they're thinking about incorporating watermarking requirements into uh, AI policy. What does that landscape look like? Yeah, certainly. So there's there, there's a lot of, uh, of of bipartisan energy on this right now. Uh, you know, S Senator Klobuchar uh, with with Thune and others has has put out a bill on deceptive AI-generated content for elections. Uh, Senator Schatz and Kennedy have introduced also another bipartisan bill on AI labeling. Mm. Um, uh, you know, Yvette Clark in the House has 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 a bill on regulating deep fakes um, and requiring digital watermarking on certain content for criminal activity or malicious deep fakes that lead to inciting violence or interfere mm -hmm. with elections. So there's a lot of energy. You know, I don't we don't see anything passing anytime it's it's unlikely other than something very narrow and tailored for anything to pass this year yeah. we don't even know about next year but the folks in the senate that i spoke to said that that you know they see watermarking as something that they are paying close attention to and they want to push forward but that it's also sort of like like Olympic athletes, when they when you find out that AR watermarking is there, they said it's like an Olympic athlete. Now that I know you're looking for this drug, I'll just take another drug. So if mm. we we do something on AI watermarking, bad actors will inevitably, at least a small percentage of them, will find a way to get around legislation, to get yeah. around standards. Um, and so that's why Adobe and others have tried to focus on trying to create better trust when we do put out a piece of content rather than trying to show and disprove that some piece of content is fake or false. Right. Okay. And is there any possibility that the federal election commission might do anything in this space in time for 
the November election in the U.S.? Yes, there there is. So the, the FEC, the Federal Elections Commission, is, has been asked uh, just a few months ago to establish new rulemaking required for political campaigns and groups to disclose when their ads include AI-generated content. There is a high likelihood that they will put out those rules beforehand. Okay. Um, doesn't mean that all campaigns or all super PACs or interested parties will will abide by that, but they mm. will put out these rules and they will be able to use that the, the, use those statutes in some way to crack down. And we are already seeing a AI generated advertisements as part of the 2024. Election. Yeah, absolutely. We've yep. seen it from one of Trump's major super PACs. Yep. You know, we're seeing it come out of uh, out of DeSantis. We probably will see it come out of the Biden campaign uh, potentially. So? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's it's sort of it's it always just sort of becomes uh, you know, well they did it, so you know we do as well. That's mm. how like, dark money works, and you know right. that's it. so you know in super PACs. So it'll it, it's you know whether it's this cycle or the next one, Democrats will start using it unless there's a, a, a harsh illegal clampdown on it yeah. i'm sure they'll have ai generated ads as well no thank you so much for coming on the show this has been a great conversation sweet up next on safe mode we're starting 2024 by looking back at the year that was we're joined by rob joyce the national security agency's director of Cybersecurity, and morgan adamski the director of the nsa's Cybersecurity collaboration center to talk through what u.s intelligence agencies saw in cyberspace in 2023 that's up next on Safe Mode. I'm joined today by Rob Joyce and Morgan Adamski, who between the two of them uh, work to protect some of America's most sensitive networks. Rob Joyce is the director of the Cybersecurity Directorate at the National Security Agency. Morgan Adamski is the chief of NSA's Cybersecurity Collaboration Center. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you this morning. Likewise. Morgan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, really excited to be here. Thanks for having us. So we're doing this interview on December 21st. Uh, this week, the NSA released its cybersecurity year in review report. And one of the things that really struck me in that report was the attention to Chinese cyber operations. So I'm wondering if maybe we could kick things off by just looking back at 2023 and describing what you saw in terms of Chinese cyber operations. This year, the difference is we saw China pre-positioning on U.S. critical infrastructure. So that's different than espionage. That's different than stealing intellectual property for commercial gain. They are there to be able to disrupt our ability to go and support conflicts. Um, the, the idea that they're there in our infrastructure is something significant that we have to push back against. Morgan, you've been talking a lot about this issue of Chinese operations and critical infrastructure. And I'm wondering, you know, you've been trying to raise awareness, trying to get folks to pay attention to this issue. How's that going? It's going really well. I think there's a lot of people that recognize the significance that the U.S. cybersecurity community can have in just providing insights and expertise on how do we find this threat, how do we get them out of these networks, and how do we keep them out of these networks. And so I think there's a lot of people that are stepping up to make a difference, and we really appreciate it. It's definitely been a game changer for us as we try to understand the comprehensive China threat. I'm wondering, Rob, if you might elaborate a little bit on what China is trying to achieve with its operations against U.S. infrastructure. And when we're talking about U.S. infrastructure that's being targeted, I mean, specifically, what are we talking about? We're talking about things like electricity, ports, airports. It's the, it's the base capabilities of the U.S. And what they're trying to achieve is to stop us from being able to deploy in the event of a, of a crisis. They're also looking to turn us inward at times of crisis so that we're not focused on whatever the issue is in the Asia Pacific region. So their intent is basically to keep us from entering that fight. Mm -hmm. When you look at what's happening in, in Ukraine, for example, with, with Russian cyber operations against critical infrastructure there, how would you compare and contrast how China thinks about its operations against critical infrastructure versus you know, how the Russians are approaching it in Ukraine? Well, I think China is looking at the operations in Ukraine and understanding that they have to plan and prepare. Russia clearly wasn't well prepared going into Ukraine to be able to support the invasion with cyber operations. They quickly threw together some effects. There was the Viasat hack. There was a lot of effort with wiper viruses against businesses in, um, in and around Ukraine, but it wasn't significant and massive. Uh, 
Um, we just had the Kiev Star hack. So that's what, two years in, they get to a massive infrastructure attack. I think China is looking at that and saying they, they need to plan, pre-position, and be ready in advance. Mm. When the NSA is exposing some of these operations that are being done by nation state actors, it, it seems like we've, we're seeing more of these types of exposures happening. Is that a shift? Is that something you're trying to do more of and be more proactive about? Yeah, it, it's very purposeful. Um, why? The internet's owned and operated by commercial industry. So we have to have them aware of what we're seeing with our intelligence capability because they need to invest their resources, their expertise, and put their energy into both um, locking out these kind of intrusions and pushing out the ones that are there. What was what, what's driving that shift, or or when did you make the decision that you know what we're we're going to change gears and and start exposing a lot of these operations? I mean, for you know, if you look back at the NSA's history, it's been immensely secretive. You're starting to be more public. You're sitting with us doing an interview, right? This wouldn't have happened 15, 20 years ago. Um, but in terms of the decision to burn more foreign nation state operations, what drove that shift? What was the turning point with that? Well, we established the cybersecurity directorate here at NSA a little over four years ago with the intent of forming these kinds of relationships with industry, working more with, um, with partners, whether it's CISA, FBI, um, our Five Eyes partners, and many other like-minded nations around the world. We looked and said, what is our capacity and capability? Our special superpower here at NSA is the foreign intelligence mission. So we can reach into those foreign actors and understand intent, capability, and operations. And at the same time, industry has this tremendous view of what's normal and abnormal on their platform. And they have this base of expertise that's unmatched. So marrying us together in those activities um, is really powerful. And by bringing us together, we, we have to work in this open, unclassified world. We have to bring our intelligence to that space because the people we need to partner with, the people who can do something, don't have those clearances. Was it, for example, I just want to press on that point a little bit. Was it, for example, you know, Russian operations around the 2016 election that made NSA realize it kind of needs to be a little bit more forward leaning? Was that a turning point or was there some other incident that um, kind of pushed you in this direction? Yeah. So there wasn't one incident, but it was um, the sophistication of some of the Russian malign influence, election security and other things. It was the pervasive widespread intrusions by China. It was um, Iran, but it also was the rise of these, um, these criminal hacktivists who have broad reach, big impact, um, but are out of reach of normal traditional law enforcement. And so we needed to be um, involved with new partners in new ways. And I think you also see um, our interagency peers operating in new and different ways, right? CISA has stepped up in tremendous ways. FBI is doing some incredibly innovative operations that are not just trying to arrest people, but really get to disruption of the ecosystem. So we've all started to pivot and work differently, but more collaboratively across both government and industry. So in this world that we're living in, the highly secretive, no such agency approach doesn't really fly anymore. It doesn't fly, but it's it's necessary. What we've learned is what we know is not nearly as important um, to keep secret as how we know it. So we still have secrets, right? How we understand some of the Chinese plans and intention, how we understand where they've had success and where they've been frustrated. But the what they're doing and how we can cause friction in their operations, that's something we've got to share and we've got to have trusted partners. How do you decide when to burn a foreign nation state operation? I can imagine, you know, if you're sitting in an intelligence agency, you're watching a Chinese operation happen, you know, you're learning a lot about what they're doing just by watching and not burning them, right? Like what kinds of questions are they interested in? But at a certain point, you you 
arrive at the decision that, you know what, the right thing to do is to expose this and burn it. How do you arrive at that point? What are the factors driving that decision for you? Yeah, so there's a lot of things that go into those kind of decisions. You, you mentioned several of them. Um, but one thing we're always thinking about is how do we alter the decision-making process of the people who are in charge? And when you go to any cyber operation, there's somebody that has decided they're going to do it, whether it's an individual criminal acting on their own who believes that the profit outweighs the risk and the threat, or whether it's a government institution who believes that they can do this without international repercussions, without um, shame and, and disreputation to their country. Um, and, and so we're trying to alter that calculus because in the end, you can take away tools, you can disrupt their infrastructure, um, but they're gonna rebuild those things. If you impact the decision makers who say, this really isn't a winning strategy that's causing us more pain than, than the potential operational good, um, you start to slow down and disrupt and have deterrence effects. I think if you look at um, the Ukraine invasion, for example, we were very public as a U.S. government about the eve of the, the invasion and the need to protect U.S. critical infrastructure and businesses. Um, that public messaging combined with the capabilities and operations we do consistently to push back, um, those things aggregated to the point we had deterrence. And the operations in and around Ukraine stayed in that theater. They didn't come to the U.S. They stayed on the combatants. Um, there was some intelligence gathering um, against companies that would look to supply lethal aid into the region, um, the transportation of weapons and goods that NATO and our allies were, were supplying. But those were traditional intelligence operations. Those weren't disruption. So the idea that, you know, we talk about this stuff, we push back, we give the decision makers the chance to kind of internalize what we're doing. Um, that's a deliberate act and intended to do, um, to do, to implement deterrence. If I can just add something, you know, it's not just necessarily about burning an access or burning an operation. Um, it also is just about raising awareness amongst the cybersecurity community. So when we talk about PRC cyber threat against critical infrastructure, we want the cyber defenders to be aware of the threat. We want to talk about how to defend against it. The same thing came about with Russia, Ukraine, right? When the government released the cybersecurity advisory on how to protect satellite communications systems, right? After the Viasat attack. And so it's not just necessarily about, it's obviously equally important to influence the decision makers, but we also want to make sure that the defenders can be prepared to protect their networks against that threat before it actually happens. We're in the end of the year for the cybersecurity industry, which means I'm getting bombarded by emails about kind of uh, the year that was. And one of the things that you know folks are spending a lot of time pointing out to me is that um, Log4j continued to be the most exploited vulnerability in 2023, now more than a year after it was exposed. Um, how, how frustrating is it for you to see that? Um, extremely frustrating, right? We spend a lot of time, large government campaigns to talk about these type of vulnerabilities, how to patch, to pay attention to it. But quite honestly, we had a lot of back-to-back, -back, right? We had Hafnium, we had Log4j, we had Russia, Ukraine. And so cyber defenders at a certain point likely got very fatigued. But it's extremely frustrating because our adversaries, similar to what we talk about with the China threat, right, are using these commonly exploited vulnerabilities to get into access to networks. And there's people are just not patching them. And so they're making it really easy uh, for people to walk through the front door. And you know, if we're putting that much attention and highlighting those type of vulnerabilities, we need people to prioritize really patching them and focus on mitigations. Is there any kind of change in, in the policy landscape that you'd like to see when it comes to patching issues and trying to deal with that? Well, I think you know the, the National Cyber Director, the White House um, have all been pushing the idea that um, we do need to have some amount of regulation in the space. Um, I think people understand what they need to do, um, but when it comes to a profit loss business, the motivations aren't always there to invest everything they need to do in cybersecurity. So at that point, you've got to get 
the minimum standards into regulation. And if you look at the past 12 months, um, there's been a shift to try to set up some of those minimum requirements. And I think that's, um, that's a cost to just doing business now is we have to invest in cybersecurity. How would you say the big players in the technology ecosystem are doing in, in terms of their security maturity? You know, for example, there were a lot of folks on on the Hill this year that were heavily criticizing Microsoft for some of the business decisions around their security products where clients had to pay extra for logging capabilities to catch a, a high profile Chinese hacking campaign. Um, and you know, the other criticisms around design decisions that enabled that. How do you think the the big players in the technology ecosystem are doing in terms of their security posture? Yeah, so they get it. And I would put 2023 as a turning point. You mentioned, you know, Microsoft in, in enabled logging um, for a lot of customers. So it is not an add-on feature. It is by default part of your service. We've got to get to the point where security is not a premium service. Security is a base service. And, and if you look at the bigs in the ecosystem, they do an incredible amount to um, secure all of us, whether it's the um, individual users at home, the small businesses, the mediums and the large, but they're the ones with the resources that can make ecosystem-wide improvements um, on security. And, and I look at what they're delivering and it's really impressive for the capabilities they're rolling out. Are they perfect? Not yet. Um, and you know, all of us across the government are uh, on board with the Secure by Design movement and looking to advance that so that um, the, the ecosystem has the default security built in um, from the beginning. But generally, did you want to add to that? No. Uh, but generally speaking, you're kind of you're happy with the products you're buying. We're going in the right direction. Right? <laughs> Everything's not perfect. And if it was perfect, we wouldn't have the issues we're seeing. Um, but it's, it's trending better. And the idea that we can get um, some of these companies with massive security teams um, who have you know, tremendous expertise and bring the most sophisticated, newest detection technologies, that makes us all more secure. Mm. Wanted to return to the the Chinese operation against Microsoft, which I think was a, a pretty astounding one in many ways. It was carried out by stealing a signing key that was obtained after a signing key was inadvertently included in a crash dump that made its way from a, a protected system to a less protected system. And then an, a compromised engineer's account was used to steal that signing key and you know when that the results of that investigation were revealed that i think a lot of folks in cybersecurity world thought wow this this is not how i thought this would have happened right um and i think it speaks to um interesting developments in how the chinese are carrying out their operations and i'm wondering if um you might be interested in in reflecting on what you think the lessons learned in terms of Chinese operations were from that incident. So I have to be a little careful here because I'm on the Cyber Safety Review Board and we're in the midst of evaluating that um, particular intrusion, mm. working with um, Microsoft and, and others in the ecosystem about the particulars. So I can't talk a lot about it. I can talk in general. Um, I think the things I took away from that and other operations are, if you're a major provider these days, um, that's where the data is and that's where the adversaries are going to go to try to get their advantage. So they are going to bring sophisticated nation state technology to exploit you. And, and so you've got to continuously be evolving both your detection tradecraft as well as um, you know, your attention to those, securing those networks. I thought we might turn to Russia briefly. Um, I'm curious, two years into the war, more or less, how do you see Russia's use of cyber operations in that conflict evolving? Um, I, I talked about the arc a little bit, right? At the beginning, they were unprepared. It was really clear that um, 
Russia was not ready to do combined arms across cyber and physical. Um, as time went on, they advanced from individual operations of wiper viruses and unique pressure um, on individual small elements to now a much more sophisticated effort that is a lot more Intel-centric. Um, most of the operations, Kevstar as the outlier, most of the operations are going against Intel targets. They're trying to get information on um, what the military is doing, where their operations are going. They're trying to understand um, movements of, of material and troops. They're trying to understand negotiating positions. Um, so um, a, a lot of this has transitioned into um, what you would expect in a um, intelligence-driven campaign. But um, Kyivstar will remind us that they and are- And Kyivstar was the attack on Ukrainian telecom system that occurred yes. in the past week. Yeah. Yes. So that will remind us that there's still a focus on critical infrastructure. And when they get a chance, they will go after it. So I would expect, you know, they will hope to do- energy disruptions throughout this winter, right? So we'll look for that. Um, they will continue to come after communications, command and control. But I think the biggest threat to the Ukrainians right now in the conflict is being able to keep their information secure to prosecute the war. Hmm. One of the things your annual report spends a lot of time looking at is um, securing the defense industrial base. Um, and for listeners who might not be familiar, that's the huge number of defense contractors that serve the U.S. government. I'm wondering if, um, Morgan, you might speak a bit to the security maturity within the defense contractors. How are they doing? So when you talk about the defense industrial base, you're talking anywhere between 200 and 300,000 companies. The number constantly changes depending on how many active contracts the Pentagon has. Um, the big dib companies, the primes as we call them, there's only about eight to 10 of them. This is um, Lockheed Martin, yeah, Boeing. They make up 80% of acquisition spending for the department. So big, their threat teams are amazing, right? From a cybersecurity perspective, they're extremely talented, they're robust. The dib is targeted every single day. Um, it's It's been talked about for years how advanced persistent threats go after the dib. So they are prepared in countering it. The real problem is the small to medium-sized businesses, um, the companies that don't have those cyber protection teams, that don't understand the threats. They can't, you know, they can't ingest indicators of compromise and do anything with them to protect their networks. And so a lot of the work that we do at the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center that's highlighted in the report is actually how do we secure those small to medium-sized businesses through offering free cyber security services. And 90% of our companies currently enrolled in those services are small to medium-sized businesses. So it's really about supply chain illumination. Who are the critical small companies that are building and supporting these big weapons platforms? I, I think there's a very um, big difference between the primes and the smalls. And so we've got to really pay attention to some of those small companies to help help them help themselves, really. And the smaller companies, they're selling into the larger defense industrial base ecosystem, right? Yeah, they're the subcontractors, right? They're building the small components. They're providing that one piece of hardware on a sub that nobody else can make, but it's critical to its success. I mean, they are important because they make the entire ecosystem come together. But unfortunately, don't they don't have the resources. They don't have the people. I mean, we all know there's a shortage in cybersecurity talent, right? And they're not, they don't have the funds necessarily to hire that talent to protect their network. Works. And so they pay a significant role. For as long as I've been covering cybersecurity, I've been hearing complaints from private industry that the U.S. government isn't doing enough to share information about what's happening in cyberspace. I'm, it seems, you know, as I think this conversation has illustrated, right, the U.S. government is trying to share more information. But I'm curious, Morgan, if you think you're happy with where you're at in terms of information sharing. Well, you may not know me that well, but I'm never happy with where we're at. I always want us to do more. Um, I think, you know, when I reflect back um, on three years ago when we opened the center, it was December 2020 during Solar Winds. Um, and we said, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to share information? How are we going to build partnerships? Um, we had about 10 partners at the time. I think we're up to over 850 in the last three years. And those are partners who have willingly stepped in and want to be cooperative with us in our information sharing. I think we're still figuring out um, 
what type of information we need to share, who can use it, what's going to be more beneficial, and what does everybody care about from a prioritization perspective. And so um, for our big two efforts in this upcoming year, really focus on continuing to build those robust relationships with the biggest and best companies in the world, and then separately scaling those cybersecurity services to protect the small to medium-sized companies. What does NSA information sharing look like on a day-to-day basis? It, it doesn't have some massive production behind it. It is as no. simple as... NSA operating in an unclassified environment, which is very unique. Um, And we exist in an unclassified environment. We take sanitized information that we take out of our insights. We move it into that unclassified environment and we share it directly with the net defenders at these companies. It, It is in real time. So if you think about it, we used to share information and it would take weeks, months to get to people and it was already outdated. We are now sharing information within minutes that we're producing it in a classified environment. That's pretty insane. Is there a Slack? Yes, there's Slack and all types of things. It really depends on whatever platform the companies want to use. As you can imagine, there are some corporate policies on certain companies not using certain platforms. So we kind of have to be agile. Mm -hmm. Um, We also did not create some bespoke NSA capability uh, that would do this because that's not comfortable to our private sector. So we really are, it's really about meeting them where they're at so that we can make it as easy as possible and make them as comfortable as possible. I want to talk a bit about the AI Security Center, uh, new initiative at the NSA launched this year. Um, it's focused on, and here I quote from your year in review report, the secure development, integration, and adoption of AI capabilities within national security system. The second component, quote, how adversaries use and target AI. And I want to focus on that last bit. How do you see U.S. adversaries targeting AI systems? So the way we approach this is the way we approach a lot of cybersecurity. We start with our Intel understanding. And what we're seeing is, like us, all of the major adversaries are investing in AI technology. Where are they going to use that? They're going to use that um, to enhance the productivity of the things they're doing today. That's the near term. You're not going to see this radical innovation where AI is instantly its own threat. What it's going to make is the attackers who use um, AI faster, more agile, and more capable. It's going to make um, people doing malign influence operations against um, elections and other things um, able to speak in more digestible terms, more acceptable, more realistic terms. Um, So they'll probably be more effective with their messaging. And then in the criminal space, um, we see AI being used to generate new and unique phishing tools, new and unique campaigns um, to prosecute their activity. And we even see across the board AI being used um, to help software writers create their tools. Um, So um, what the intelligence is showing is the same thing that industry is experiencing is AI is an accelerant. And so what we're able to do with the foreign intelligence is zero in on the tools, the campaigns, the techniques that are underway to help bring that into security. Okay. Do you envision, for example, that, you know, foreign powers might be targeting US AI companies and you know trying to steal AI models for example when you talk about targeting AI is that is that part of the threat model for you yes there's to rob's point there's two separate pieces right there is our adversaries targeting AI companies and trying to steal that intellectual property and our innovative capabilities and then there's our adversarial attacks on AI so those actors actually attacking an AI network so we break it into two different pillars um, but those are the two big streams under the AI security center that we working against. And we'll use different operating models and way of sharing that insight with those companies that can protect against it. But absolutely going to be targeting those AI companies. We want to make sure they have that information as well as how to protect against it. Yeah. How do you think the big AI companies are doing in terms of protecting AI models? AI models are easy to steal, right? They're like, they're really light. Um, they're, it, it's not, in terms of exfiltrating a, a, a piece of data, exfiltrating an AI model would be a, a pretty trivial, right? Yeah. I mean, this is a, fast-changing landscape. Obviously, AI has been around for a while, but really took off within the last year in terms of a conversation topic. I think the good news is that a lot of the the bigger AI companies are already stepping up and want to understand the threats. They want to be able to protect their models. They understand it's coming. So I think there's a lot of attention to it. Um, And, you know, People always talk about the difference between AI security and AI safety. AI security is where we really need to spend a lot of time as well. And I think people are forming 
really good coalitions around that to better understand the threat and come together to actually protect everybody else's models as well, which is good. What kinds of adversarial AI attacks are you, are you thinking about? What, what feels within the realm of the possible when it comes to NSA threat models for adversarial attacks? Well, we know that AI will be used across the board in national security systems. So that is the intelligence community, the warfighting community, um, the, the networks that carry our secrets. And so what we've got to protect against in that space is the idea that you can get into one of those models and make it do things that it shouldn't, whether it's divulge information um, in that classified realm or not do the function that we intend it to do. So imagine, for instance, that there is AI control in some of the um, in some of the, the weapons platforms the department intends to use. We've got to make sure that there's no way to spoof that model to make it think red turns red turns blue and blue turns red. So those weapons then turn around and target our uh, capacity and capability. So there's a series of activities that when you talk about national security systems, we have to have the utmost trust in it. And that's what NSA um, has been doing for decades in national security systems is ensuring the trust in those systems, whether it's to protect information or remain up in terms of nuclear command and control or to have integrity um, in the transmission mode so that it can't be jammed and blocked. So we'll try to bring those same things to AI um, security is to ensure the trust in those systems when they're used operational. One thing I hear a lot from folks in AI world is that AI development is far ahead of efforts to do AI safety and security or kind of trust, as you put it in, in your answer. Um, curious what that looks like from where you guys sit. Does Do you think you have good enough tools to ensure safety and security or trust of AI models? Uh, or do you think that kind of AI development is still far ahead of that's the reason behind establishing the center, right? We've been doing AI and machine learning for decades at NSA. Um, you know, there's been the explosion in the large language model portion of AI um, in the past couple of years. But this gives us a center of gravity to bring our expertise together in one place. Um, the, the science of AI and the implementations are just on a rocket right now, right? The the amount of innovation that's going on is tremendous. So no, we don't have everything we need to do, but but this is our effort to bring that critical mass in both expertise and touch points to industry who has um, a tremendous amount of expertise and is also leading that innovation. So um, this brings us all together in one place so that we can optimize that safety and security. One of the things I've been noticing in AI discourse in the last maybe year or so is starting to kind of integrate and adopt more concepts from cybersecurity. And it seems like concepts in cybersecurity are, are starting to be ported and applied over to AI development. I'm thinking in particular of um, the intense focus on red teaming. I'm curious if you think you, you've both been doing cybersecurity for a long time. Do you think there are lessons from cybersecurity world that maybe folks in the AI space should be paying more attention to or thinking more about? Yeah, um, we often say that, you know, 80 to 90 percent of AI security is cybersecurity. It is, it, you know, there are general basic hygiene type things um, and cybersecurity mindsets, like just basic principles like Jirtas that we like to think about on how we set it up. So I think we, we're just taking those lessons learned and that expertise and we're trying to apply it. So I do think it's absolutely something that AI professionals need to pay, pay attention to. I think you've covered the idea that adversaries are going to come at these models in new and innovative ways. So we also have to build our expertise to red team them, to evaluate them, and to stimulate them in unplanned and unique ways. Um, that That's a value of NSA is um, we have that hacker mindset. Um, we do this to others. And so by pairing offense and defense, you get the, the expertise. I'd say it takes the thief to catch a thief. 
Um, so as we think about how we're going to pursue exploitation of foreign um, adversaries, um, we're bringing those new innovation techniques back into how do we defend against those same things happening to us. Mm. There's a big debate playing out right now within you know, AI research and industry communities about open versus closed source models and the safety and security versus innovation and transparency benefits of the one versus the other. And I'm curious whether you have any thoughts on that debate about um, whether you see more value in, in open source AI models or greater risks in, in open source models, or whether you think the closed source approach that we see from some of the big corporate players are the way to go here. Well, from my chair, um, we have to embrace both. Both have happened, will happen, are going to happen. Um, so we have to be prepared to work with the, the big closed source teams and uh, bring that intelligence and understanding to their um, ecosystem where we don't get the ability to red team them and test them independently. And then we've got to be looking at the open source pieces um, where we can play in the ecosystem and directly suggest improvements and fixes back into their world. No, completely agree. <laughs> we do have to. We have to be on both sides, and for, it helps us to have both of those perspectives. So when a, a, a new open source model is released like for example um, the French AI company Mistral recently released a, a, um, a highly capable open source model uh, there was no announcement they just tweeted a um, torrent magnet link and um, there it is there it is <laughs> there it is and when something like that happens like does the NSA AI uh, security center, do you download the model and kind of test it and see what it's about? What happens in that shop when a model like that is released? Yeah, today, we do not, right? Um, the focus here is on national security systems. So we are, um, we're capacity limited like everybody else. And the amount of innovation going on across the globe is, uh, is massive. So our focus is on the tools and techniques that the Department of Defense, that uh, the the major um, the major labs are going to use, things the IC is going to adopt, things that the White House will want to put into production. So we're starting there, um, and then as we build more capacity and capability, obviously we'll have to look across the whole ecosystem. But the start is with the things that the U.S. government plans to adopt and integrate. Thank you so much for this conversation. I appreciate it. This has been great. Thank you for making the time. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review and share it with your friends, your mom, your dad. Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.